The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close, by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 18, The Final Reckoning They rode a long time through a war-torn country, and the days bound the young men together so closely that at times it seemed to them that they had fought on the same side all through the war. Sergeant Whitley was usually their guide, and he was an expert to bargain for food and forage. He exhibited then all the qualities that afterward raised him so high in the commercial world. Although they were saddened often by the spectacle of the ruin the long war had made, they kept their spirits, on the whole, wonderfully well. The two colonels, excellent horsemen, were an unfailing source of cheerfulness. When they alluded to the war, they remembered only the great victories the South had won. Invariably, they spoke of its end as a compromise. They also began to talk of Charleston, toward which their hearts now turned, and a certain handsome Madame de Launy, whom Harry Kenton remembered well. As they left Virginia and entered North Carolina, they heard that the Confederate troops everywhere were surrendering. The war, which had been so terrible and sanguinary only two or three months before, ended absolutely with the South's complete exhaustion. Already, the troops were going home by the scores of thousands. They saw men who had just taken off their uniforms, guiding the plows and the furrows. Smoke rose once more from the chimneys of the abandoned homes, and the boys who had faced the cannon's mouth were rebuilding rail fences. The odor of grass and newly turned earth was poignant and pleasant. The two colonels expanded. "'Though my years have been devoted to military pursuits, Hector,' said Colonel Talbot, "'the agricultural life is noble, and many of the hardy virtues of the South are due to the fact that we are chiefly a rural population.' Truly spoken, Leonidas, but for four years agriculture has not had much chance with us, and perhaps agriculture is not all. It was the mechanical genius of the North that kept us from taking New York and Boston. Which reminds me, Happy, said St. Clair to Langdon, that, after all, you didn't sleep in the White House at Washington with your boots on. I changed my mind, replied Happy easily. I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Soon they entered the mountains, and they met many Confederate soldiers returning to their homes. Harry always sought from them news of his father, and he learned at last that he was somewhere in the western part of the state. Then he heard, a day or two later, that a band of guerrillas to the south of them were plundering and sometimes murdering. They believed from what details they could gather that it was Slade and Skelly with a new force, and they thought it advisable to turn much farther toward the west. "'The longest way round is sometimes the shortest way through,' said Sergeant Whitley, and the others agreed with him. They came into a country settled then but little. The mountains were clothed in deep forest, now in the full glory of early spring, and the log cabins were few. Usually they slept, the nights through, in the forest, and they helped out their food supply with game.' The sergeant shot two deer, and they secured wild turkeys in quantities of smaller game. Although they heard that the guerrillas were moving farther west, 
which necessitated the continuation of their own course in that direction. They seemed to have entered another world. Where they were, at least, there was nothing but peace, the peace of the wilderness, which made a strong appeal to all of them. In the evenings by their campfire, in the forest, Delanguay would often play for them on his violin, and the great trees about them seemed to rustle with approval as a haunting melody came back in echoes from the valley. They had been riding a week through a wilderness almost unbroken when, just before sunset, they heard a distant singing sound, singularly like that of Delanguay's violin. "'It is a violin,' said Delanguay, "'but it's not mine.' The sound comes from a point at the head of the cove before us. They rode into the little valley, and the song of the violin grew louder. It was somebody vigorously playing old Dan Tucker, and as the woods opened, they saw a stout log cabin, a brook, and some fields. The musician, a stalwart young man, sat in the doorway of the house. A handsome young woman was cooking outside, and a little child was playing happily on the grass. I'll ride forward and speak to them, said Harry Kenton. That man and I are old friends. The violin ceased as the thud of hoofs drew near. But Harry, springing from his horse, held out his hand to the man and said, How are you, Dick Jones? I see that the prophecy has come true. The man stared at him a moment or two in astonishment, and then grasped his hand. It's Mr. Kenton, he cried, and them's your friends behind you. "'Light, stranger's light! Yes, Mr. Kenton, it's come true. "'I've been back home a week, and not a scratch on me, "'though I've fit into nigh unto a thousand battles. "'I reckon my wife, that's Mandy there, "'wished so hard for me to come back "'that the Lord let her have her way. "'But light, stranger's light, and have supper!' "'We will,' said Harry, "'but we're not going to crowd you out of your house. "'We have plenty of food with us, "'and we're accustomed to sleeping out of doors.' "'Nevertheless,' The hospitality of Dick Jones and his wife Mandy was unbounded. It was arranged that the two colonels should sleep inside, while the others took to the grass with their blankets. Liberal contributions were made to the common larder by the travelers, and they had an abundant supper, after which the men sat outside, the colonels smoking good old North Carolina weed, and Mrs. Jones knitting in the dusk. "'Don't you and your family get lonesome here sometimes, Mr. Jones?' asked Harry." "'Never,' replied the mountaineer. "'You see, I've had enough of noise and multitudes. "'More than once I've seen two hundred thousand men fightin', "'and I've heard the cannon roarin', days without stoppin'. "'I still get to dreamin' at night about all them battles, "'and when I awake, and set up sudden-like, "'and hear nothing outside but the tricklin' of the branch "'and the wind in the leaves, "'I'm thankful that them four years are over "'and nobody is shootin' at nobody else.' And it's hard now and then to believe that they're really and truly over. But how about Mrs. Jones? She and the baby stayed here four whole years without me. But we've got neighbors, though you can't see them for the trees. Just over the ridge lives her mother. And down Jones Creek, into which the branch runs, lives her married sister. And my own father ain't more than four miles away. The settlements are right thick round here, and we have good times. Mrs. Jones nodded her emphatic assent. "'Which way do you all allow to be going tomorrow?' asked Jones. "'We think we'd better keep to the west,' replied Colonel Talbot. "'We've heard of a guerrilla band under two men, Slade and Skelly, who are making trouble to the southward.' 
I've heard of them too, said Jones, and I reckon they're about the meanest scum the war has throwed up. The troops will be after them a force long, and we'll clean them out, but I guess they'll do a lot of damage afore then. You gentlemen will be wise to stick to your plan and keep on toward the west. They departed the next morning, taking with them the memory of a very pleasant meeting, and once more pursued their way through the wilderness. Harry, despite inquiries at every possible place, heard nothing more of his father, and concluded that, after the surrender, he must have gone at once to Kentucky, expecting his son to come there by another way. But the reports of Slade and Skelly were so numerous and so sinister that they made a complete change of plan. The colonels, St. Clair and Langdon, would not try to go direct to South Carolina, but the whole party would cling together, ride to Kentucky, and then those who lived farther south could return home chiefly by rail. It seemed on the whole much the wiser way, and curving back a little to the north, they entered by and by the high mountains on the line between Virginia and Kentucky. Other returning soldiers had joined them, and their party now numbered thirty brave, well-armed men. They entered Kentucky at a point near the old wilderness road, and from a lofty crest looked down upon a sea of ridges, heavy with green forest, and narrow valleys between, in which sparkled brooks or little rivers. The hearts of Harry and Dick beat high. They were going home. What awaited them at Pendleton? Neither had heard from the town or anybody in it for a long time. Anticipation was not unmingled with anxiety. Two days later, they entered a valley, and when they stopped at noon for their usual rest, Harry Kenton rode some distance up a creek, thinking that he might rouse a deer out of the underbrush. Although the country looked extremely wild and particularly suited to game, he found none. But unwilling to give up, he continued the hunt, riding much farther than he was aware. He was just thinking of the return when he heard a rustling in a thicket to his right and paused, thinking it might be the deer he wanted. Instead, a gigantic figure with thick black hair and beard rose up in the bush. Harry uttered a startled exclamation. It was Skelly, and beside him stood a little man with an evil face, hidden partly by an enormous flat-brimmed hat. Both carried rifles, and before Harry could take his own weapon from his shoulder, Skelly fired. Harry's horse threw up his head in alarm, and the bullet, instead of hitting the rider, took the poor animal in the brain. As the horse fell, Harry sprang instinctively and alighted upon his feet, although he staggered. Then Slade pulled trigger, and a searing, burning pain shot through his left shoulder. Dizzy and weak, he raised his rifle nevertheless, and fired at the hairy face of the big man. He saw the huge figure topple and fall. He heard another shot, and again felt the thrill of pain, this time in his head, heard a shrill whistle repeated over and over, and did not remember anything definite until some time afterward. When his head became clear once more, Harry believed that he had wandered a long distance from that brief but fierce combat, but he did not know in which direction his steps had taken him. Nearly all his strength was gone, and his head ached fearfully. He had dropped his rifle, but where, he did not know nor care. He sat down on the ground with his back against a tree, and put his right hand to his head. The wound there had quit bleeding, clogged up with its own blood. He was experienced enough to know that it was merely a flesh wound, and that any possible scar would be hidden by his hair. 
but the wound in his left shoulder was more serious. The bullet had gone entirely through, for which he was glad, but the hurt was still bleeding. He made shift to bandage it with strips torn from his underclothing, and after a long rest, he undertook to walk back to the camp. He was not sure of the way, and after two or three hundred yards, he grew dizzy and sat down again. Then he shouted for help, but his voice sounded so weak that he gave it up. He was never sure, but he thought another period of unconsciousness followed, because when he aroused himself, the sun seemed to be much farther down in the west. His head was still aching, though not quite so badly as before, and he made a new effort to walk. He did not know where he was going, but he must go somewhere. If he remained there in the wilderness, and his comrades could not find him, he would die of weakness and starvation. He shuddered. It would be the very irony of fate that one who had gone through Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and all the great battles in the East should be slain on his way home by a roving gorilla. He rested again and summoned all his strength and courage, and he was able to go several hundred yards farther. As he advanced, the forest seemed to thin, and he was quite sure that he saw through it a valley and open fields. The effect upon him was that of a great stimulant, and he found increased strength. He tottered on, but stopped soon and leaned against the tree. He dimly saw the valley, the fields, and a distant roof, and then came something that gave him new strength. It was a man's voice singing, a voice clear, powerful, and wonderfully mellow. They bore him away when the day had fled, and the storm was rolling high, and they laid him down in his lonely bed by the light of an angry sky. The lightning flashed, and the wild sea lashed the shore with its foaming wave, and the thunder passed on the rushing blast as it howled o'er the rover's grave. He knew that voice. He had heard it years ago, a century it seemed. It was the voice of a friend, the voice of Sam Jarvis, the singer of the mountains. He rushed forward, but overtaxing his strength, fell. He pulled himself up by a bush and stood, trembling with weakness and anxiety. Still came the voice, but the song had changed. Soft o'er the fountain, lingering falls the southern moon. Far o'er the mountains, breaks the day too soon. In thy dark eye splendor, where the warm light loves to dwell, weary looks yet tender speak their fond farewell. Nita, Juanita, ask thy soul if we should part. Nita, Juanita, lean thou on my heart. It was an old song of pathos and longing, but Harry remembered well that mellow, golden voice. If he could reach Sam Jarvis, he would secure help, and there was the happy valley in which he lived. As he steadied himself anew, fresh strength and courage poured into his veins, and leaving the fringe of forest, he entered a field, at the far end of which Jarvis was plowing. The singer was happy. He drove a stout bay horse, and as he walked along in the furrow, he watched the rich black earth turn up before the plowshare. He hated no man, and no man hated him. The war had never invaded his valley, and he sang from sheer pleasure of living. The world about him was green and growing, and the season was good. His nephew, Ike Simmons, was plowing in another field, and whenever he chose he could see the smoke rising from the chimney of a strong log house in which he lived. Harry thought at first that he would go down the end of the long field to Jarvis, 
But the plowed land pulled at his feet and made him very weak again. So he walked straight across it, though he staggered, and approached the house, the doors of which stood wide open. He was not thinking very clearly now, but he knew that rest and help were at hand. He opened the gate that led to the little lawn, went up the walk, and, scarcely conscious of what he was doing, stood in the doorway and stared into the dim interior. As his eyes grew used to the dusk, the figure of an old, old woman, lean and wrinkled, past a hundred, suddenly rose from a chair, stood erect, and regarded him with startled, burning eyes. "'Ah, it's the governor, the great governor, Henry Ware,' she exclaimed. "'Didn't I say to you long ago, you will come again, and you will be thin and pale and in rags, and you will fall at the door. I see you coming with these two eyes of mine.' As she spoke, the young man in the tattered southern uniform, stained with the blood of two wounds, reeled and fell unconscious in the doorway. When Harry came back to the world, he was lying in a very comfortable bed, and all the pain had gone from his head. A comfortable, motherly woman, whom he recognized as Mrs. Simmons, was sitting beside him, and Colonel Talbot, looking very tall, very spare, and very precise, was standing at a window. "'Good morning, Mrs. Simmons,' said Harry in a clear, full voice. She uttered an exclamation of joy, and Colonel Talbot turned from the window. "'So you've come back to us, Harry,' he said. We knew that it was only a matter of time, although you did lose a lot of blood from that wound in the shoulder. I never intended to stay away, sir, but you remained in the shadowy world three days. That long, sir? Yes, Harry, three days, and a great deal of water has flowed under the bridge in those three days. What do you mean, Colonel? There was a military operation of a very sharp and decisive nature. When you fell in the doorway here, Mrs. Simmons, who happened to be in the kitchen, ran at once for her brother, Mr. Jarvis, a most excellent and intelligent man. You were past telling anybody anything just then, but he followed your trail and met some of us, led by Sergeant Whitley, who were also trailing you. And Slade and Skelly, what of them? They'll never plunder or murder more. We divined much that had happened. You were ambushed, were you not? Yes, Slade and Skelly fired upon me from the bushes. I shot back and saw Skelly fall. You shot straight and true. We found him there in the bushes, where your bullet had cut short his murderous life. Then we organized, pursued, and surrounded the others. They were desperate criminals who knew the rope awaited them, and all of them died with their boots on. Slade made a daring attempt to escape, but the sergeant shot him through the head at long range, and a worse villain never fell. And our people, Colonel, where are all of them? Most of the soldiers have gone on, but the members of our own immediate group are scattered about the valley, engaged chiefly in agricultural or other homely pursuits while they await your recovery, and incidentally earn their bread. Sergeant Whitley, Captain St. Clair, and Captain Mason are putting a new roof on the barn, and, as I inspected it myself, I can certify that they are performing the task in a most workmanlike manner. Captain Thomas Langdon is plowing in the far field, by the side of that stalwart youth, Isaac Simmons, and each is striving in a spirit of great friendliness to surpass the other. My associate and second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, has gone down the creek fishing, 
a pursuit in which he has had much success, contributing greatly to the larder of our hostess, Mrs. Simmons. And where is Sam Jarvis? The colonel raised the window. Listen, he said. Up from the valley floated the far, mellow notes. I'm dreaming now of Hallie, sweet Hallie, for the thought of her is one that never dies. She's sleeping in the valley, and the mockingbird is singing where she lies. Listen to the mockingbird singing o'er her grave. Listen to the mockingbird where the weeping willows wave. The words of the song are sad, said Colonel Talbot, but sad music does not necessarily make one feel sad. On the contrary, we are all very cheerful here, and Mr. Jarvis is the happiest man I have ever known. I think it's because his nature is so kindly, a heart of gold, pure gold, Harry, and that extraordinary old woman, Aunt Suze, insists that you are your own great-grandfather, the famous governor of Kentucky. I was here before, in the first year of the war, Colonel, and she foretold that I would return just as I did. How do you account for that, sir? I don't try to account for it. A great deal of energy is wasted in trying to account for the unknowable. I shall take it as it is. What's become of Colonel Winchester, sir? He rode yesterday to a tiny hamlet about twenty miles away. We had heard from a mountaineer that an officer returning from the war was there, and since we old soldiers like to foregather, we decided to have him come and join our party. They are due here, and unless my eyes deceive me, and I know they don't, they're at the head of the valley now, riding toward this house. Harry detected a peculiar note in Colonel Talbot's voice, and his mind leaped at once to a conclusion. "'That officer is my father!' he exclaimed. "'According to all the descriptions, it is he, and now you can sit up and welcome him.' The meeting between father and son was not demonstrative, but both felt deep emotion. "'Fortune has been kind to us, Harry, to bring us both safely out of the long war,' said Colonel Kenton. "'Kinder than we had a right to hope,' said Harry. The entire group rode together to Pendleton, and Dick was welcomed like one risen from the dead by his mother, who told him a few weeks later that he was to have a stepfather, the brave Colonel Arthur Winchester. "'He's the very man I'd have picked for you, mother,' said Dick gallantly. The little town of Pendleton was unharmed by the war, and since bitter feeling had never been aroused in it, the reunion of North and South began there at once. In an incredibly short period, everything went on as before." The two colonels and their younger comrades remained a while as the guests of Colonel Kenton and his son, and then they started for the farther south, where St. Clair and Langdon were to begin the careers in which they achieved importance. Harry and Dick and Pendleton entered upon their own life work, which they were destined to do so well. But often, in their dreams and for many years, they rode again with Stonewall in the valley, charged with Pickett at Gettysburg, stood with the Rock of Chickamauga, or advanced with Grant to the thunder of the guns through the shades of the wilderness. This concludes the Tree of Appomattox, and also concludes the Civil War series. Thank you for listening.